been thinking about how we started each of the sermons in this series. So we began in week one with me telling you about my, my grandmother who has dementia, uh, this cruel and inexorable disease whereby you lose your mind by inches until it takes you to your death. She's been forgetting small things recently. She's been forgetting bigger things, including the husband who's loved her these past 60 years. The week after that, we thought together about the young woman who had surgery to remove a tumor in her cheek. And during that process, a nerve was cut that left her with a palsied face, drooping, crooked, twisted lips that will be with her until old age. The week after that, we considered the man who was colorblind, born that way and living out all his days in black and white. Then just last week, we considered this time the fictional case of the young woman who would live forever. Seemed wonderful at first until she realized the loss that came with this life, weeping as she held her gray-haired daughter. And as we started each of these sermons in this way, we've reflected on how these people remind us, not of someone else, but really of ourselves when it comes to the love of God. Why? Because when it comes to the love of God, we all have spiritual dementia. We're forgetting the husband who's loved us all these years. We're prone to forget how much he cares about us. We're also like that young woman kneeling with crooked lips, twisted not because of some surgery, but because of our sin, a people in need of unconditional love from another. We're like that man who's colorblind, living out our lives in in black and white, unable to see the full spectrum, all the colors of God's love for us. It it pours out on us every day in a thousand moments and in a thousand ways, and yet we're so find it so hard to, to to notice and see the rainbow of His goodness toward us. And then, lastly, we're like that young woman, longing for a love that will last forever, a love that will make it to the end, and knowing in our own unfaithfulness that we need someone else to be faithful to us. Well, this week we come to our final question, and we consider. How? How is it that God loves us? In the situation we find ourselves in, in the very pew in which you're sitting this morning, in the very uh, stage on which I stand, how does God love me right now? How does he love you right now? How does he love us right now? We're going to answer that question from the book of Ephesians. So first, a couple of things that's helpful to know and kind of by way of introduction to this book. It's another letter. Remember, much of the Old Testament is written in the form of of letters, which would originally have been read out from beginning to end in the presence of the congregation. Now, we didn't have time to do that this morning, so we just dove in and read a section from chapter 5. But if we had read it from beginning to end, what we'd see is that the book is divided into two very clear sections. The first section, uh, the book has six chapters, and the first section runs from chapter 1 to chapter 3. And theologians call this section the indicative section. What what does that mean? Well, indicative has to do with being. It has to do with who we are in Christ. It has to do with Jesus and all that he has done for us and the difference that that makes to our lives before we would ever do anything for him. 
So in chapter 1, Paul opens by reminding the Ephesians uh, God has loved them. How, how long has God loved you for? Paul answers, he has loved the church since before uh, time. Since eternity passed, since before the world was even created, God loved his church. Moves into chapter 2 and talks about how the same God has saved us by grace through faith. He loved us in the past. We made a mess, but he still loves us in the present. He is here to save us by grace through faith. And it adds that famous line, this faith, which is a gift of God. In other words, God comes and saves you by his grace. And the only requirement is that you would have faith. And because he knows we won't fulfill that requirement, he, go ahead, he goes ahead and gives us faith. The thing that he requires is the thing that he provides, so that from beginning to end, this gospel is of grace. Then Paul moves into the third chapter, and he reflects upon God's love for us coming in the future, that we would be strengthened in his love, that we might be sure of it and understand how high and wide and broad and long is the love of Christ for us. So indicative, chapters one through three, it's about what Christ has done and who we are, who we are in him. Now, the second section of the book, chapters four through six, aren't about the indicative. They're not about who we are. Instead, theologians call this the imperative or what it is that we are now to do. How should we live in light of who we are? That's what Paul gets into in the second section of the book, giving us lots of instructions, lots of wisdom, lots of guidance for how Christians should live as they follow Christ. Now, this order, why am I talking about all this? This order is hugely important. Indicative comes before imperative. Who you are in Christ comes before what you do for Christ. If you lose that order, you lose the gospel. If Paul opens up his book and says, here's a bunch of commands, obey him, and then you might be these people in Christ. That is, becomes, becomes a legalism, becomes a work. Who we are in Christ becomes dependent upon what we do. And that's not the gospel order. The gospel order is we have been given grace. And in light of that grace, we're to live a certain way. So the section that, that we read in chapter 5 comes in this imperative section, in this section of commands. But it's important for us to understand that it's rooted or grounded in what Christ has done for us. Secondly, a thing to note just by way of context is that the section we read really begins up in verse 1 of chapter 5. So take a look at verse 1 of chapter 5 where it says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. So in this larger section, Paul is saying, uh, you, should, you should imitate God. You should become like God as beloved children. See the indicative imperative? You are beloved children and now be imitators of God. And to do this, I want you to walk in three ways. Verse two, take a look at verse two. He says, walk in love. Walk in love. As you have been loved by Christ, so you should love others like Christ has loved you. Second, in verse eight, see it says that we're to walk in light. Walk in love, verse 2, then walk in light, verse 8. He's saying, um, don't be caught up in all the darkness that characterized your life before you knew Jesus. All the sin that entangled, all the guilt and all the shame, all that mess, you don't need to live that way anymore. 
you can come into the freedom of the light. You can inhale the fresh air of the gospel. The light is your friend, Christian. Come and walk in it. Then thirdly, in verse 15, see, we're told to walk not as unwise, but as wise. Walk in wisdom. All the things I'm teaching you in this letter, put them into practice. Don't be like a fool who just knows these things in their head, but doesn't allow them to make any difference in their lives. Walk in accordance with the counsel of the scriptures. So imitate God, he's saying, be like God, become like God by walking in love, in light, in wisdom. And so the section that we read, starting in verse 25, is part of how Paul applies that principle, be an imitator of God, to a number of very specific groups, okay? So he's, he's made his point, be an imitator of God, he's illustrated his point, and now he's applying it. So look at verse 22, he applies it to wives. First word of that verse, wives. This is how you can be an imitator of God. Verse 25, he applies it to husbands. Husbands, this is how you can be an imitator of God. Verse 1 of chapter 6, see the first word? This is how children can be imitators of God. Verse 4 of chapter 6, first word, fathers, parents. This is how you can be imitators of God. He goes on in verses 8 and following to apply it to how servants can imitate God and to how masters can imitate God. He's taking this general principle, the imitators of God, and he's applying it to very specific and targeted groups. And so the section we read, verse 25 through 33, is a section where Paul is applying this idea, be an imitator of God, specifically to husbands. Specifically to husbands. And what he says is, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. See it there? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, he's saying, husbands, you're to love your bride in the same way that Jesus, the true groom, loves the church, the true bride. That's the command of Scripture where we say, okay, how, how is that? How does Jesus love his church? Our text gives us three answers. You ready? Three points for the morning. Number one, how does Jesus love his church? Verse 25 tells us that Jesus loves his church. And look, who's his church? I'm his church. You're his church. We are his, his church. Jesus loves us this morning, point one, with a special kind of love. A special kind of love. What do I mean by this? Well, look at verse 25. See how it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The word loved here is important. Uh, the Greek language in which the New Testament was written actually has uh, four different words for love, which is helpful, right? Because um, I love my wife and I love pizza, right? Do I mean the same thing when I make those two statements? Um, I better not, right? Um, both are beautiful to behold, okay? Um, but I don't mean the same thing when I say I love pizza and, and when I say I love my, my, my wife. I'm, I'm, I want different nuances to that idea. Well, the Greek language provides us some nuance by having four different terms for love. The first word the Greek language will use is the term eros. This refers to sensual, physical, sexual love. It's where we get our term erotic. Now, understand that in our context, that word erotic perhaps has kind of a CD connotations, but not necessarily so in, in the Greek language. God 
Sex was God's idea. He dreamt that up. It is part of his good gift to us in this world. And so this idea of uh, physical, sensual, sexual love is something that Christians should be all about in the right context. Second word that we get for love in the Greek language is the word storge. Now this is very different to a kind of physical, sexual love. Uh, Storge refers more to family love, more to the love that exists between, say, a parent and a child. And so several months ago, I was was in bed on a Saturday morning, and I heard one of my wee ones coming to the door, right? And so I pretended to be asleep, okay? And uh, she crept in, okay? And (laughs) you know, like when kids whisper, kids whisper like this like really loud. So she creeps in like this, right? And uh, I'm lying there, right? And she puts her wee fat palm into my hand, okay? And she leans in and she kisses me and I smell peanut butter, okay? (laughs) And in that moment, I'm just like, "Mm, I love this kid, right? I love this kid. My, My heart is full for the love of this wee girl. Now, very different to romantic, physical, sexual love, but very powerful nonetheless. That's what storge is. It's family love. Third word the Greek language uses is the word philos. Philos, which refers to the kind of love that exists between friends, the kind of love that exists between brothers, perhaps. It's uh, Philadelphia. Okay, that's where we get this idea, city of brotherly love from. And it's, it's that love that's the, the reserve of, of, of good, close friends. This week, we took a college road trip a couple times a year. I go with some of our staff to visit the colleges in Virginia, and I'll speak at one of their campus ministries, and then we'll take the students out to dinner and breakfast and, and so on. And it was great to be with them, and great to see the kind of a camaraderie that exists between many of the roommates. Okay? The roommates who have just like close bond, shared lives, deep friendships, and friendships that really might be with them for the rest of their lives. That's what philos is. It's the kind of friendship that's different to sexual love, different to family love, but that very powerful bond that exists amongst friends. So those are three of the words, and perfectly good words, healthy words, great words, but not the words that are used in Ephesians 5.25 when we're told that Christ loves the church. When Paul writes this, he uses a special term for love. He tells us that Christ loved the church, and the term that he uses for love is the term agape. Agape. Christ agaped the church. It's the Greek word that communicates an unconditional love that always results in action. An unconditional love that always results in action. An internal disposition that has external results. So, John 3.16. God so loved the world. God so agaped the world. God had this internal disposition toward the church that he gave his only son. This internal disposition resulted in external fruit. This is, this is the term that's used to describe God's love, Christ's love for the church. Agape, an unconditional affection that results in action. 
So uh, a few weeks ago, my, my grandmother with dementia, um, she wandered off, right? You know this, the, you, you've heard stories like this, like this before. She wandered off, got lost, didn't know how to find her way home. Well, my grandfather came home, he made a couple of phone calls, and then he decided to go and, to go and look for her. Well, do you remember one of the details I told you about my grandfather? <laughs> he's legally blind. Right? So he's not the best candidate for a search party. <laughs> Fair to say. <laughs> but love doesn't stay home. Love doesn't stay home. Agape doesn't stay home. It's an unconditional affection that results in action. That results in action. And Christ doesn't stay home either. (laughs) Jesus doesn't stay home either. He loves us with this special love. First of all, it's this unconditional love. So you didn't do anything to earn it and you can't do anything to lose it. No matter who you are this morning, no matter what we've done this morning, Christ is still prepared to shower out his love upon us because it's unconditional. And he's proved this to us by allowing this internal feeling, this internal reality to result in external fruit. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, while we were opposed to him, he gave us his unconditional love and died for us. That's how we are loved by Christ this morning, unconditionally, in a way that has fruit. The love of Christ for me, the love of Christ for you, the love of Christ for us, don't think of it as some hallmark, passive, modeling, wishy-washy, you know, feel-goodism. That's not what it means that God loves us. The love of Christ is active. It is concrete. It is tangible. It is demonstrable. It is a money where your mouth is kind of love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a special kind of love. A special kind of love. Second thing we see in our text is that not only are we loved with this special kind of, of love, but we're also loved with a deeply sacrificial love. A special love and then a sacrificial love. Look again at verse 25, where husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church and, see the next words, gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. The love with which Christ loves us is the kind of love that doesn't stay home, but also the kind of love that won't stop short of experiencing pain. Won't stop short of absorbing pain. And again and again and again, the scriptures will point us to that reality by pointing us to the cross, by saying, do you have doubt over God's love for you? Do you have doubt over its extent, its height or its depth, its length or its breadth? Are you uncertain that he loves you? Well, just look at the extent with which he went to love you. Look at the cross and let that be the symbol, the moment that helps you understand how much it is he cares. See, love that is is distant uh, is really no love at all. We've seen some powerful examples of this in the last few weeks in in our own country, perhaps in Las Vegas. An amazing story, a testimony from a woman called Crystal Goddard who describes how a man she didn't know covered her with his body and received 
an unnumbered amount of bullets, dying though he didn't know her name and she still doesn't know his. Uh, or perhaps think of just all that's been going on with the, the hurricanes, right? That as everybody evacuates, first responders go, the wrong, go, go in the other direction. Right? They, they move towards the trouble. They move towards the pain. They put their own lives on the line. That's sacrificial love. Love that doesn't stop short of absorbing pain. And that's how we've been loved by Christ. No one ever left as much or gave as much as Christ left and gave for us. Leaving the beauty of heaven, giving his very life on the cross. If you doubt the love of Christ for you, consider his grace, consider his, his cross. It's that defining, proving moment where we see his love poured out. That's how we're loved by Christ. The special love, sacrificial love. Lastly, briefly, also, verse 26, with a sanctifying love. You see it there? Uh, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, verse 26, that he might sanctify her. That he might sanctify her. He loves us with a sanctifying love. Well, what does that mean, right? Sanctifying is an unusual word, a strange word, not a word I think any of us use in day-to-day conversation, right? But what it simply means is uh, to become holy, Sanctus means holy. So sanctifying is to become holy. In English, we don't have the word holification. Okay, that's not a word. And so we use the word sanctification to, to get at that idea. To be sanctified means to become holy, to become an imitator of God. Now, does that sound boring to you? Does that sound like we are sanct- How do you become holy? By not doing a bunch of things you want to do? and by doing a bunch of things you're not really all that excited to do, okay? You do not understand God's plan of sanctification. God's plan of sanctification is the plan whereby we start to imitate him. We become like him. We become like his son. We become more of what we were ever intended to be in the first place. Sanctification is the great adventure of the Christian life. And that's how Christ is loving us. Loving us that we might be sanctified. Well, what's the connection? How how does love sanctify us? Let's think of the example of Peter. Peter, my favorite of all the disciples because he's such a disaster, okay? Story starts in Luke 5. What a great story. Peter's out on his boat and he's fishing. Why? Because that's his job. That's, That's his day job. And they're not catching any fish. It's not been a good day in the office. And Jesus shows up and he says, oh, let's try again. And they say, okay, Rabbi, um, we are fishermen. We've caught nothing all day. We know these waters. We know how fishing works. Don't show up and tell us how to fish. And Jesus says, no, go on. Let's just see. And so sure enough, they cast out the nets and what happens? They bring in so many fish that the boat begins to sink. And Peter, uh, Jesus says to Peter, from now on, you'll be a fisher of men. So you're no, no longer going to go after fish. You are going to go after souls. You're going to be part of my mission to change the world. Puts this call of the gospel on his life. Well, from there, Peter goes on and has the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, doesn't he? Highest of highs. He's the one who makes this great confession of Christ. 
There's this big discussion. Who is this Jesus guy? Well, you know, maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's a teacher. Maybe he's this, that, and the next thing. And Peter says, no, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. Jesus is the savior that's come for this world. While everyone else is still kind of scratching their heads and figuring it out, this wild man has the insight to know that Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for. And Jesus responds to him by saying, yeah, on this rock, I'll build my church. On this confession that I am the Christ, all of history will be changed. An amazing high. Uh, and then some lows. Oh, Peter. Um, let's just go to the end of the story, right? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has, he has been betrayed by, by Judas. Uh, the soldiers have arrived. Jesus faces crucifixion and death within hours. And Peter decides it's a good time to make Jesus perform another miracle. Pulls out his sword, chops off a soldier's ear. Remember this story, right? And you can just see Jesus like, dude, you are killing me, right? You know how much is on my plate right now? You know what I have to do right now? You know what's coming for me in the next 24 hours? And now I have to go like heal a guy for you, right? Um, seriously, right? Well, within the next few hours, it gets worse, doesn't it? As Peter finds himself in the courtyard as Jesus is being tried, and he's asked three times if he has an association with Jesus, and though he, denied, although he had promised he would never deny Christ as Lord, three times he does so in the space of but a few moments until the cock crows and he realizes that, that he's denied as Lord. And so is it any wonder, after those lows, <laughs> that Jesus is crucified and Peter goes back to being a fisherman. Jesus is crucified and, and Peter says, um, I, I, this calling to be a fisher of men, I have forfeited that. I'm no longer able to be a part of that ministry. Consider, consider the things I've done. So I'm going to go back to doing the only thing I really know how to do, which is fish for fish. Remember the story ends? Jesus serves up, John 21. Peter's on his boat fishing. Jesus arrives and with echoes of Luke 5 says, hey, cast out the nets. They're sure that there's going to be no fish that day, but once again, they cast out the nets and they bring in so many fish. This time, John tells us they bring in 153 fish, which I love that detail. Luke 5, they don't know, just loads of fish, right? John 21, they're like, we've been here before, intern, count these fish, right? Um, 153, fish everywhere. Um, Peter then sees Jesus on the shore, and the wild man leaps into the water and swims over, where he finds that Jesus has made him breakfast, right? What does Jesus do when you deny him to his death? shows up and makes you breakfast. Then they take a walk. And three times Jesus asks them, do you love me? And three times Peter has to ask, respond that he does. At first, he's hurt that he would be asked again and again and again until he realizes that as he denied his Lord three times, he's been asked to affirm his love three times that he might be restored to the work of being a fisher of men. And so... When Peter opens up his New Testament letters, he doesn't announce himself as Peter, the denier of Jesus Christ. He announces himself as Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ. 
because Jesus showed up, cooked him breakfast, took him on a walk, and loved him from being a denier into an apostle. That's how love sanctifies. And here's the truth. Here's the beautiful truth. Jesus this morning, he makes you breakfast. He makes you breakfast. What if you've not had a good week? You've had a better week than Peter. And he still shows up and makes you breakfast. And he still leans into you and calls you to the kind of life that he has in mind. The kind of life that he has in mind. Not based on your foolishness, but based on his faithfulness. And so over time we find that more and more and more we are becoming those fishers of men. We are becoming those people that God has intended for us to be. In the long view, we always take the long view. Despite the ups and downs of the moment, the ups and downs of the week, we believe that Christ has begun something good in us and he's at work to make us more like himself. It's a sanctifying kind of love. How does Christ love us? Special love, sacrificial love, a sanctifying kind of love. That's how we're loved this morning. That's the indicative. Next week, we start our, our next series, which is going to be on the imperative. What does that mean? If we're loved like this, how ought we to love? That's what we're going to consider together as a church over the, over the next few weeks. Having been loved by Christ, how are we to love others with the love of Christ? How does this understanding of God's love change the kind of church that we want to be? We'll begin next week. We'll think about those things together. For this week, remember, friends, you've got spiritual dementia. I've got spiritual dementia. We forget the love of our husband, but Jesus, our husband, never forgets his love for us. Yes, we kneel with crooked lips before the cross, and yet he twists his lips to give us the kiss of grace. Yeah, we're colorblind, but the gospel gives us glasses. It gives us lenses so that we don't live in spiritual Kansas anymore. And sure, we long for faithfulness to have a love that will end well. And because of his faithfulness to us, we know that it will. Understanding God's love for us. May he pour out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that we might know these things are true. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word and for the special, sacrificial, sanctifying love with which you love us. We believe and we pray that you would help our unbelief in the perfect, uh, kind, loving name of Jesus we pray. Amen.